For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everybody. It's so nice to see all of you. I hope everyone's feeling good um, with our sense of optimism that seems to be in the air a little bit here and there, a little bit more than this time last year, that's for sure. Um, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey today with my talk, so just kind of bear with me because it's probably going to zig and zag a little bit. But that's all part of the fun. Buddhist practice looks at three characteristics of our our existence, not only human existence, but just our being. One of those is impermanence. The other is suffering. And the other is emptiness or or no self or non-self. Our lives are believed to be created by ignorance. And out of that ignorance comes this existence where we do a lot of clinging, where we're looking for almost a a fixed idea or a fixed self, and thereby that creates a lot of suffering for us. If we could study the fact that our lives are constantly changing, that if we do cling and get fixated on things, it really tends to cause us a lot of suffering. And that inherently, there's nothing to cling to. We could live a more, a life that's tempered by the middle way without getting too high or too low over any one thing. A life with less less suffering. Part of this concept, though, once we get kind of sucked into this karmic life we're living, in Buddhist practice, there's an idea that there are six different realms of existence, and you could actually migrate through these different realms. And this is actually a very archaic idea in Buddhism, but I've, I've always find, found it kind of fascinating. And um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about what those realms are. So we know we're in the, the human realm, which is considered actually the best realm for Buddhist practice or Buddhist study, because there's just enough suffering to make you want to practice but not so much suffering that you really can't devote yourself to practice at all because you're in so much pain. So the human realm for us, of course, with our, you know, concentric attitude is right in the middle. Below it is the animal realm, which we are all familiar with that. Um, Then the hungry ghosts, which are beings that are desperately trying to satisfy their desires, but usually they're depicted with their mouths. Their stomachs are really big and their mouths are very small. And they keep trying to put more and more into that small mouth. So there's an inherent suffering in that. And then the hell realms, which, you know, most of us understand what that means. Um, And then above the human realm are angry, angry gods. So they're beings that have a better life, but they still get into conflicts and and emotional, you know, topsy-turvy type situations with the other gods that they're hanging out with. And then above that, the heavenly beings which are in almost a paradise, but it's not great for enlightenment because they're so happy there, they have no impetus for study. Now in Buddhism, so through my journey, if you look at different aspects of our practice, there's so many lists. Like we all know uh, the Eightfold Path, um, the Four Noble Truths. Well, you could go deeper and deeper and almost everything you look at in Buddhism has a lot of lists and, and categorizations. So what I've come across in my own study lately, which I didn't realize, is that even all of these realms that I just brought up have different realms within them. Specifically, I wanted to talk about one of the hell realms, which is called the Avicii hell. And in that realm, supposedly, now the idea is that things are constantly changing. And no matter what realm you get born into, you can move from one to the other back down and up again, and finally you reach enlightenment. And again, this is an old idea. Mahayana Buddhism has kind of evolved past this kind of Theravadan view of singular Buddhist practice for the individual. 
But anyway, so I, through my studies, I've come across what's one of the hell realms is called the Navinci hell or Naraka. And what that name means is unrelenting and no waves in a sense that if you land there, you're never getting out. And I was like, wow, that's weird. I never realized there was this concept within Buddhist thought. So the next question is, what would you have to do that would be so bad knowing how Buddhism is and it allows a person to evolve in different ways or de-evolve too, that's okay too. What would you have to do to end up in a place that supposedly you can't get out of? And yes, there is a list, (laughs) five transgressions. So the first one is intentionally killing one's father. So this is, again, very archaic view. Uh, The second one is intentionally killing one's mother. The third one is killing an enlightened being. The fourth one is creating a schism in a community of spiritual practitioners, which in Buddhism we call a sangha. So if you create a rift in a spiritual community in a sangha, that's one way to get there, which I've always found that very interesting as well. And then five is shedding the blood of a Buddha. So these are these grave offenses that if you do these five things, you could end up in this most awful hell realm and never get out. Boom. So as I'm studying, I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at the Lankavatara Sutra. The Lankavatara Sutra is believed to be the sutra that Bodhidharma was a master in, the one that he studied. Bodhidharma is considered the first patriarch of Zen Buddhism. So I'm looking at the sutra to look at the teachings he supposedly was a master in, and it's believed to kind of lay the basic canon for Mahayana Buddhism, or the great vehicle, which Zen is a part of. There are different types of Buddhist practice that, that are involved in that basket of Mahayana Buddhism, Zen being one of them. But I'm looking at these teachings, and this is actually where I came across the Avicii Hell. Um, the Mahayana teachings that stem from the Lankavatara Sutra talk about that everything is a perception of our own mind. So in a way, it's an emptiness teaching that everything that we're experiencing is really just a reflection of what's happening in our mind. And then also, it's important for us as practitioners. Now, again, this is the Lankavatara Sutra speaking, teaching. It's important for us, though, to not just be told that by somebody else. So I'm telling you that you're thinking about it, but it's not important for you to just hear it intellectually. It's actually important for you to have an actual experience of that. That's inherent for you. And that true mastery of this teaching is is within the experience of that. So in one part of the Lankavatara Sutra, a lot of it's question and answer like many sutras are between one of the Buddha's disciples asking the Buddha questions. So one of the questions that were asked, so now I'm taking you, stay with me on this journey, because this is kind of what happened to me while I was looking at this. One of the questions was asked of the Buddha, is it possible for anybody to migrate out of Avicii hell? And, And the Buddha said, yes. And so the question is, how can that possibly be? Because we were always taught that if you end up there, that's it. The Buddha's answer was, you have, to, you have to realize that killing one's father is, a, he didn't say a metaphor, but it's obviously a metaphor. Killing one's father is actually the elimination of ignorance in our own practice, in our own idea of what this life is. Killing one's mother is the elimination of desire, which is, we know, the mother of all suffering. Killing an arhat or an enlightened being is the elimination of hidden passions within oneself. Most of us have practiced meditation, at least for a little while. And we all know that once you get still over time, all kinds of things are going to come up that often we didn't even realize were there, right? So the killing of an arhat is actually eliminating your own hidden passions that come up through your practice. Um. 
Sangha disruption is the dis- destruction of the five aggregates or skandhas. We often chant this in the uh, Heart of Perfect Wisdom Sutra, but the five skandhas or five aggregates are the baskets in which we move and experience our life. So the first one is form, meaning, you know, we're all in a shape of very physical existence, um, sensation, emotional reaction or sensations to the things that happen to us. Perception, we label things, okay, that's a table, that's a chair. Uh, formations, meaning how we respond to these constructions we create, how we kind of move about in, in volition of them. And then consciousness, the awareness of I am Paula, and there's a bunch of people now looking at me and we're interacting in some kind of fashion. So the Sangha disruption, according to the Lankavatara Sutra, is actually the elimination and going beyond these five aggregates. And then finally, shedding the blood of, of a Buddha is embracing emptiness, embracing no form, non-perception, um, embracing no intention, and doing that with no mercy. So kind of with an intensity that, that has no construct. So as you could see, now what fascinated me about this, and this also goes to, um, I've been looking at the Lotus Sutra over the last year, and the Lotus Sutra talks a lot about relationship and looking at the interaction of you and your environment, you and another person, you and however you're moving through the world, and what happens within that relationship. And oftentimes it can be referred to as a turning is a turning, and that our practice actually happens within that turning. So just exploring this idea of Vichy Hell, you can see there was a turning right there. First, we're looking at it from a very concrete, simplistic way of what did you do and how did you get there? And it's awful, right? Intentionally killing one's father and mother, and I mean, it's just awful. But then the evolution of the teaching was, look, it's only a metaphor, it's only a metaphor for our practice. And actually, there are very positive things that, that you could look at within the text and look at them in such a way as what positively does it mean for our practice? So when we made that switch from this, wow, this is so negative and people are burning in hell to, wow, this is a way of deconstructing our practice in a sense. What was that that happened? in our mind and in our perception when that switch happened. So does our practice lie there? And if it does, how do we get familiar with it? And of course, everything goes back to our practice of Zazen. So this is one idea of Zazen practice, that we get familiar with that space where the turning can happen. And if we could carry that space with us as we move about the world, would it help us embrace the turning, embrace the changes? Would it help us actually realize that on one level, things could be absolutely awful and horrifying and heartbreaking. But if we could stay in that space and if we have faith in our practice and permanence teaches us that it will change. So can we stay in that space and help the change evolve? Can we stay in that space and be aware of the subtle changes that are happening as these things evolve and migrate and change? So I really, I really, that's a a convoluted way for me to, to look at that because that's really what the talk is about is just looking at the stillness within turning. And I also, before I close, I wanted to talk about um, a fable that some of you may be familiar with. It's a Chinese cultural fable that really has to do with the middle way. But it's a little, it's it's a simpler way of looking at this concept again. So there's a man who raises horses for a living. And he lives on a big estate. And One of the hands that work on on the ranch leaves the stable door open overnight. And 
the best horse, the best stallion that this man has leaves during the night and runs away. So the neighbors come and go, oh my God, that's just awful. Are you going to punish that servant? Are you going to fire him? I mean, you must be devastated. And, and the man says, you know, it, it's not anything to get upset about. There's nothing anyone could do about it now. So I think it's okay. And I'm just going to continue on with my life. Well, it just so happens that that stallion, as it was wandering around, found a white mare, which was considered a very rare horse and came back to the stable over time with the white mare. So the neighbors again were like, oh my God, this is such good luck. Look, this white mare is very rare. The stallion brought her back. Now they're hanging out back on the ranch. You're actually better off than you were when the stallion ran away. The man said again, yeah, it's great, but you know what? I had no control over what happened. Things changed. This is fantastic. I'm not going to get too excited about it because again, it's just something that happened. I really had nothing to do with it. So then his son is riding the white mare, trying to break her in, and the horse bucks him off and falls on him and breaks his leg. This is the first son. The neighbors again, oh my God, this is such a tragedy. That mare was supposed to bring good luck, but look, it actually brought you a lot of bad luck. Now your son is lame. And the man says again, which you know where this is going. Well, I had nothing. There's nothing I could do about it. I had nothing to do with it. So let's just take it easy and kind of ride with the tide and not get too excited or too sad. So then the country ends up getting invaded and the country has to go to war. And the the government comes around and starts recruiting all the able-bodied men to go fight. And his son doesn't get recruited into the war because he's lame. And then the neighbors say again, oh my God, that's amazing. You got so lucky that your son doesn't have to go to the front line and he can stay home with you. So we could continue on. But the moral of the story basically is to take that middle way. And to take the middle way of stillness within turn. And I think I'll stop there and see if this brings up anything for any of you. David Ray, could you call on people? Um, And people, if you're not visible, you can also go to the participant window and hit the raise hand thing at the bottom. And uh, please feel free to give comments, questions, responses for Paul. Thank you, Paula, for fine talk. Dylan. Good morning, Sifu Paula. Good to see you. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Um, your that that um that space of being like in that pivot zone that that uh where I th- like uh so much of the practices and the discomfort of that um it reminds me of uh, a a. I had an experience of that, I think, before I started um, practicing Buddhism, where um, a relationship that I was having with a woman was ending, and we were breaking up in kind of a messy way. And uh, um, and I think, like, either I left the apartment, I think I, I forget the specifics of it, but I think I left the apartment that we were both living in, and kind of a uh, a very jagged fashion and like went to stay with a friend, like a, a mutual friend of ours. Um, and, uh, and then like a couple days later, and I just, I really hurt her feelings, you know, through, through it. And she and I ended up, you know, uh, mending the mending it, you know, and like getting on the, getting, becoming friends again. But I got, um, we had a, another mutual friend who, um, I asked if I could get coffee with her because I was just feeling guilty and, and upset about this situation, about how I was handling it. And, 
And so this woman who's one of, I think maybe my oldest friend in the city, we, we went to the Sox game together the other night. Um, and she's been my friend for like 10 years. And, uh, so she got, she was getting coffee with me and she was like up front with me where she was, she was like, I'm not really happy with you right now, you know? And, and that was one thing to just hear this person I really respected being like, I'm not really happy with you right now. But then she also said in the, and, and I was, and I was also pretty upfront of like, I just feel so embarrassed and ashamed and I don't know what I'm, what to do now, you know, about how to, what, what it looks like going forward from this. And then she was like, well, yeah, this is kind of, this is a, a, a twisted situation right now, but it's not going to be like that forever. And that really was a very liberating moment for me where this person that really cared about me was like, this is really messy right now, but it's not going to, you're not going to feel like this. Like, it's not going to be like this forever. Like there, there's a, there's a pivot that I think that you're referring to of, of the practice. I didn't know that's, that's the context that I would talk about it now. And, but that, that ability to um, sit through that discomfort and like <laughs> let the ramifications of your decisions kind of sink in and just have the strength to sort of sit through that discomfort and then have that inform the decisions you make in the future, you know, um, was a huge learning moment for me, you know, so I, it, it just reminded me of that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Because I know, and I've said this before, like, even for myself, I was drawn to Buddhist practice years ago, because I wanted to be comfortable. You know, I wanted to stop hurting. And oftentimes, it can be viewed as a very solitary practice. But we have this feeling like, we want to be in a place where nothing happens, and I could just be comfortable all the time. You know, it's almost like children, right? Because they don't want to be too cold. They don't want to be too hot. They don't want to be hungry. They don't want to be too full. You know, so it's almost like we're trying to find that spot. And the longer you practice and open up to the teachings and you realize the teachings really talk about moments of discomfort quite often. And if we could just be comfortable there, a lot will open up for us. Uh, So I appreciate you bringing that up. because. I've gone through things exactly like that in my life and in my practice. And it's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Thank you, Paula. Um, Yes, we we all want to be comfortable. And part of practice is being willing to be uncomfortable because that's more like reality. I I know Paul had his hand up. Yes. Thank you. I think you're still still muted. You're you're very right about that. Thank you very much. I (laughs) appreciate your talk. And uh, I think it's really important to go over the basics of our teaching and to and to come back to to home base, so to speak, and and not get too you know get too tripped out on the details, but to have this have a understanding of the, how it applies to our everyday life and um i, I just uh, i'm very encouraged by by your your, your teaching and your brain bringing this subject up and uh, it's always always good to hear it even though it's been said before it's it's to be reminded of the of the basics basic uh teaching is uh, is always a good thing thank you very much thank you very much thank you David Paula thank you so much for your for your talk I mean the first thing I want to say is I thought that talk was so skillful and fun because I probably wasn't the only person sitting there feeling a little bit uncomfortable hearing about you know hell and damnation <laughs> which which I, I I kind of thought I got a, got away from 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 some version of the <laughs> but of course you know but of course stories of hell are, are really pervasive and you know the ancient Mediterranean world pre-christian had had hell and lots lots of places have it. So I didn't know about this, you know, sort of metaphorical turn. It's really interesting and taking, you know, killing off the parents as as metaphorical. Um, I'm really interested in that. I mean, that's that's something I've encountered in other in other contexts. Um, so so first off, what would would you would would you say again what what the what what Buddha's metaphorical explanation of killing the father and killing the mother 
was. Sure thing. Just, just to say more about it. Yeah, I felt the same way, like that turning of it, the turning of such an archaic idea, what it just caught me by surprise as I'm reading it in the Lankavatara Sutra, but it shouldn't, you know? Um, but it was because it also points to the turning again, but it doesn't obviously point to the turning. You know, so if you don't really know about aspects of the Lotus Sutra teaching about the turning, you might miss it. But, it, it you know, so it was like um, finding an Easter egg, you know. Um, but here it is, again, the metaphorical explanation. So killing one's father is the elimination of ignorance, which ignorance is the spark of us being born into this realm. You know. Uh, killing one's mother is eliminating desire, which desire is the cause of all suffering. If we look at the four noble truths, right? So desire is the mother of all suffering. Uh, killing an arhat, arhat or an enlightened being, eliminating hidden passions. You know, that too, um, it's just, this could do it getting older as well. You know, as you, as you age, you almost get fascinated by your own complexity as well. You know, I know everyone, regardless of your age, as you grow up, you know, you, you really start saying like, wow, things are pretty complex. And when you first have your most serious friendships and romantic relationships, you're like, wow, this is, these people are so complicated, right? But then that also gets reflected back on you. So hidden passions too. It's really amazing. The more situations you put yourself in, so it, this goes back to, um, I, I know I'm kind of going off topic a little bit, David, but um, this goes back to, too, if you explore new situations, it's going to bring up different things, even within yourself. So it's important sometimes, it's not being silly about things, but it's important sometimes to take little risks and be in a situation that's new for you. So you could kind of see how you react because it'll bring up stuff inside of you that you never really knew was there because the variables are different in that situation. So that's what the third one is killing an arhat is once you get those hidden passions coming up, um, you try to eliminate those. And then four is sangha disruption, meaning breaking down the five aggregates or skandhas breaking through those, that construct that creates this existence for us, that perceptual construct. And then um, shedding the blood of the Buddha. And that means embracing emptiness, no form, no intention, with no mercy. You know, we have to remember it's Lankavatara Sutra. Bodhidharma is seen as this really intense figure about how he intensely practiced. So I'm sure that's why it's with no mercy. It's kind of mixed in there because of what he embodies. Thank you so much. I mean, what, what a beautiful picture of Buddhism beyond Buddhism or Buddha beyond Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Kathy. Hi. Hi, Paula. Thank you for your talk. Um, well, I appreciate David's asking you to uh, go back and review, and because I I was with you, and then all of a sudden it all was lost, and then I it helped pull it back together, and um, it was very helpful. And I and I got to thinking about this past year and a half, and uh, for whatever reason, the circumstances, the quarantine, all of it, I have found my, and also I just turned seventy uh, in the last year. Uh, <laughs> that that um, I have been thinking about my life. I've had like more insights about decisions I've made at different points in my life. And it's some, sometimes I've had like frustrations, like why did I make that decision? That got in the way of maybe some other goal. And, and I, so, so when I initially became more aware of looking back on those decisions, I had a reaction to them of that was good or that was bad. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought if I hadn't made, if I hadn't gone the way I did, I wouldn't be where I am now. It's like, this is 
fine. I am where I am. Uh, and kind of just enjoy what is here and uh, keep going. So, so I've gotten more neutral, not as, you know, I think in some ways killed the desire, killed the expectations um, a little bit by, but it, it means going over it some and, and kind of then loosening those reactions and mm-hmm. gradually letting go. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, but this year has done more, there's maybe because there's more time to be internal uh, than there have been in other years of my life. Anyway, thank you very much for your talk. Thank you, Kathy. Now you bring up a good point that like through Buddhist practice, even for myself, we're, we're taught when we're young to basically assess every situation we're in and, and start labeling it, right? Good or bad. And, and there are paths and decisions that are considered good and there are paths and decisions that are considered bad. This is the irony, I think, about being raised and growing up because then you really need to let that go, right? Once you start living your actual life. A lot of that assessing that you were taught to do, part of it is necessary to keep a child safe and kind of developing the right way. You know, there's kind of an agreed upon idea of how a human develops, right? But then when you start moving through your life, I think one difficult thing about being in your 20s is none of that really works anymore because you're trying to make decisions and they either work or they don't, but but you'll find um that there's more gray, that there's more gray in all of it. And that could be very confusing for a young person going out into the world. Through Buddhist practice, the practice itself has come to help me let that go, that judging of everything, and just embrace our life as an experience. And and I mean, even with physical pain, like if you have a health problem, you know, we, we need the pain to tell us something's wrong, but can we experience then this being wrong as an experience instead of just going, oh, this is just awful. This is just awful the way my arm feels because I broke it. All right. Now that you're getting it repaired, you know, something's wrong. Can you then relax into the pain and just experience the pain as an experience? Because it's our perceptions that's saying that the pain is bad. You know, like once you get familiar with the pain, can you just shift your perception a little bit and just go, okay, it's actually good because if I didn't have it, I wouldn't know my arm is broken. So can I embrace it? Can I feel it? Can I just experience the pain without labeling the pain? So in two ways, we needed to assess it to know something was wrong. But once we've done that, can we move beyond it just to make it experiential? So, so the Buddhist practice has helped me at least make the attempt to see my life in that fashion as things happen to me, whether they be physical, emotional, psychological, you know, practical. That, oh, great, this is just another experience I'm having. And then when I look back in my life, that has helped me realize what jewels a lot of the experiences in my life have been that at the time I didn't think they were. And I mean like crises and all the way to just happenstance meeting of somebody that I might've even like been like, Oh, you know, but now I see what a jewel it actually was when I look back at my life. So you bring up a good point. I see Ashley's hand. Hi, Ashley. Mute. You're muted, hon. Sorry. <laughs> I, okay. uh, we, we're not using Zoom anymore at work, so I'm like, wait, how does this work again? Yeah, um, I was just going to uh, say that, so my internet's not working so hot, and apparently neither is Zoom. Um, I was going to ask what you were talking about with turning in. Um, my internet stopped working after that. So, yeah. So, basically, where you were, what you were talking about after what David was talking about or asked you about. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'd like you to recap the entire talk, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that 
as we move through our lives, which there are characteristics of impermanence, which have characteristics of impermanence, when that change happens, sometimes it's viewed as a turning, a turning. And that change could happen like right now, you and I are in a discussion with each other. So depending on what I say, you're responding in some way. And then when you start speaking, I'm going to respond in some way. That's that subtle change in our perception is that turning is, is things are turning. They're changing. They're changing because a lot depends on this interaction. Right. So I don't know what you're going to say next. So I can't predict what's going to happen. So in that moment, when I stop talking and you start talking, there's a moment of stillness and turning. So basically, my talk is about that moment. That's amazing. <laughs> that's all I got. That's the whole, that's all I got. That's my whole response right there. <laughs> and here's mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's my whole response. <laughs> cool. Oh, that's the whole thing I missed too. Oh, that's, a, that's the best part. Okay, thanks, Paula. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> nice to see you, by the way. It's nice to see you, too. You look well. Other questions and or responses for Paula? Doug, is that your handout? There we go. Oh man, what a great talk, Paula! I, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> I've uh, I just don't know what to say. I've I just was right in there, and I, you know, I felt I felt so affirmed that uh, so much of my life has been that way, and I've I've been kind of Buddhist ever since uh, you know ever since high school. I just kind of go with the flow that way, and um, although I haven't been the most focused person I, I can relate to, uh, not making plans or, you know, not taking too much into, uh, investing into the outcome. Um, yeah, I have, there's, there's an issue of, uh, it's come up over and over in my life that about fear of economic insecurity and, um, I oftentimes wish that I had more of that because it seems like I'm, you know, all in on every project and just uh, not really planning for retirement. And here it is. And, um, you know, I guess I should be all panicky about it, but I'm not. And, uh, and I see that in, in, I, I felt that in your talk that I, I, and I felt kind of, uh, kind of happy with, uh, with having been that guy through life, you know, um, I, I'm back on the cushion after a lot of, uh, sciatica and back pain. And, um, and so I could really relate in that way. And, uh, I was like, just amazed at how, uh, somehow or another, I was hanging right in there and, you know, just like you said, the pain, I, I have the pain, but, I just kind of switched the way I'm thinking about it and, um, and and just so happy to be back here and see all these faces. I, I, uh, I, I just know that um, there's a, there's a bond here with, with everybody that uh, is really powerful for me. And I, I, I know I'm in the right place and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm in, tra- in a lot of transition right now with my mom passing and, so I've kind of let go of a lot of different outcomes. My siblings are, you know, there may be a, an issue with the house here that I've been living in and kind of maintaining for years and everybody wants their part of it. And I'm just mm-hmm. kind of letting go of the outcome all the time, you know, and uh, I'd be happy maybe living out in Colorado instead or, you know, or just, and I just continue to let go of the outcome and I, and it does pr- produce uh turmoil for me um so i guess i it, it, to make a question out of it 
how does um what's where is the balance between just kind of going with the flow so much and 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 maybe goal setting you know or or maybe staying on on track you know i know i notice i get some of that from kind of waiting for the bell and and mm-hmm. get patience <laughs> with with uh with that in my practice but um uh, it's just, I, it's so nice to be back. Thank you. Thank you. A really good talk. I, I'm surprised you. that I stayed with it so well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, you and I share a few things. I'm, I'm terrified of financial insecurity. Um, but my, but the practice helped me accept that and deal with it. So I ended up opening my own business, which was a, was a test to my practice. It was kind of like, yeah, you you believe in impermanence? Okay, hon, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> and you know what? It's worked out fine. But there are still times where that that total panic comes up, you know, and I, I still have to, I have to talk myself out of that panic. So in some ways, hidden passions, you know, it's like it's always there. It's always there. Um, And I'm also a very goal-oriented person. I always have a plan, and I always have goals for myself. But the practice has taught me, you know, we need a reason to get out of bed because we have to do something. And if if you think about it, work practice kind of teaches us that too. Like you have to actually do something, but you don't want to get attached to the outcome. So we have to accept we're human beings. There are certain, we do perceptually see things in a certain way, and we live in a society that sees things a certain way. So I do set goals, but our practice helps us to adjust when everything is not going exactly the way it was planned and to accept it with compassion when it doesn't, and then to readjust again. So in some ways, you could see goal setting as a, as a way to practice, as a way to have your Buddhist practice flourish, because can you make a goal and then let it go over and over again through each step that you take? You know, even I believe, you know, this is a saying, I know a lot of you have heard this, but I believe it's like they say, even in Harvard Business School, they said, first thing you need to do is make a business plan. The next thing you need to do is throw it out. Because nothing's going to happen the way you planned. Nothing. And I say that's very true. But it works nonetheless somehow. Eileen, was that your hand? Sorry. Asian. Thank you. Thanks for a wonderful talk, Paula. I just wondered um, if you could share more about what someone should do if they do become stuck in a hell realm. (laughs) Think of it as a sauna and embrace the heat. That's exactly what our founder, founder of our lineage in China, Dongshan, said. When it's really hot, just let the heat kill you. When it's really cold, let the cold kill you. Or just be totally hot, be totally cold. And uh, that's hard to <laughs> get our heads and bodies around. Thank you for such a fine talk, Paula. Very helpful. Thank you.
Any last um, comments or questions or responses to Paula? David, maybe it's time for Hi, Elena. So I, I didn't, you must have felt my, my hand go up even though <laughs> 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 that happens. So uh, I've been in a situation where forever and ever and ever, I've been selling my home of 43 years and looking for a place to land. And so this is very uh, uh, helpful and appropriate for me to hear. But since I don't have a specific place in mind, but just an idea of how it's going to feel and in this insane market, which so I just had this image of, of, of uh, just taking the whole thing and just throwing it up in the air and see and see what lands. It's it's um, and just not being afraid because I keep I keep bumping into this very dark space. Um, I'm also retired with without having planned it that way and um, trying to manage, suddenly manage money and place to live at the same time. And, uh, oh boy. Um, and so what do I do with that dark space? Um, I don't want to feed it, but that's a kind of clinging, right? I don't want to, I don't want to push it away. That's a kind of clinging. <laughs> so how do I, just be in that and be okay with that um, and maybe go for a walk. That's actually, I think that's a question. I think that's a question. I know this feeling that you're talking about mm -hmm. and sometimes the variables of our life put us in that place. And for me, the only thing that works for me is I have to focus on my breath. And I mean, sometimes that's how second by second it is. And this goes back to what Doug was saying, too, about financial insecurity and stuff like that. Um, you know, if you've ever if you if you really have never known it, you know, it's hard to understand the panic that it could cause. So that's what I mean. Sometimes I literally now I can do this because of my practice. I have to sit myself down. Feel my body. And start focusing on the rhythm of my breath until I could calm down and until I could open to the impermanence. Sometimes more successful than others. <laughs> second by second. It's second not even I, I forget and forget the time measure actually, right? Moment by moment, yeah. maybe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Huh. Sarah. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for your talk. Sure. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I think I too got uncomfortable with the hell aspect, but I also enjoy feeling that discomfort because I enjoy it like bringing up I like when things happen that you know bring up things internally that I can look at but I, I do have kind of an extreme example of transcending so so I had coronavirus last June and I'm one of those long hauler people. So my health at this point in time, almost a year later, is is getting better. But at like the most extreme of it, even months after having the actual infection, I had unrelenting extreme pain in my entire body that just would never go away. Neurological problems. So like couldn't work chronic fatigue, pain so bad that sometimes like I couldn't even make myself something to eat. So like people would have to come over and cook for me and bring me food. So I noticed, I mean, and that, that was very hard to sit with. And it was like, I took a new form 
essentially is the way that I looked at it. Like my, my body that I was used to went away and I was kind of grieving, not having that health anymore and had just taken a new form and had to reckon with this like new form that I was in. And, um, and I started and it was very uncomfortable and, um, so much uncertainty of, am I going to get better, you know, or is it going to be like this forever? Um, and so of course, lots of like spiraling, but it got to a point where I thought this is not, this is not sustainable. And I recognize mm-hmm. that this is making things worse. And and I had been getting kind of lost in daydreams because it was easy to sort of check out in a way, like to not be in the body was what was comfortable. But something within me told me that the key to healing was to learn to be in the body, whether or not that felt good. And so that's what kind of kicked off my meditation practice, which it was like more. So I looked at it as like survival. And so I would just sit with my pain and um, I would sit with my pain and I would sometimes, you know, with the, the neurological stuff that came up, all I could do was just sit and not even watch TV or read. So in people are going to think I'm crazy for saying this, but in a lot of ways, it was a blessing because, and I looked at this, I now look at the suffering as like so much grace because of being literally like everything being stripped away and everything changing and having to face something like that extreme has given me so many tools and all the smaller things that happen in life. And just like, I feel like a warrior for getting through it, you know? So, um, to like, of course, you know, some of the symptoms are still there, but I, the gratitude that I have is for the practice that I've picked up and then all the internal changes that happened that were kind of like, well, you know, those internal things were okay when my body was healthy, when I had that other form. But now that I have this form, I have to reckon with these internal things. And so um, when you talked about pain, I thought about that. And yeah, I just wanted to share. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. I'll just add, to thank you, Sarah, and others who have talked about vulnerabilities and difficulties and suffering. And many people come to practice through some intense difficulty. And I'm so glad you're getting over the COVID. Thank you for being here. Paul, I'll just add, I've heard that story about the stallion in, in various different versions. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I had no idea it came from Buddhism. I didn't, I had no idea, didn't know it was from the Lankavatara Sutra, which I read the early version of a long time ago. So <laughs> thank you for that. No, Tygen, that, that story is a Chinese folktale. Huh. So it didn't come from the Lankavatara Sutra. But I just brought the story forth because I felt in a more practical way. It, it personified what we were talking about. 
but it is just a Chinese folktale from my understanding. Thank you. Anyway, it's a very useful story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks. Doug? Yeah. Um, boy, thank you again so much. But uh, I was wondering if you could speak about how uh, this might relate into uh, your martial arts. I, you know, I've always kind of been interested in um, in taking the class, and and uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we have this Zoom because it's it's a, quite a hike for me to get up there, but. Um, uh, it's always been like something I've been really interested in. And I, you know, I, I, I really have a question about it, but and I guess it would give you an opportunity to plug the, the course or, or whatever you're doing with, uh, with um, that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> right. When you said martial arts, like you didn't see this, but Dylan practices with me as well, but he knows under the table, I went, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, inside joke. But <laughs> um, I have an organization called Warriors Path Buddhist Academy, and we do retreats once a month on various aspects of Shaolin practice. So what you could do is actually connect with Dylan, and he could, like, for example, next weekend, there's a Shaolin warrior retreat. So in the morning, we actually do martial art practice and some Tai Chi. And in the afternoon, we do Qigong and sitting. Um, if that's something you would want to, if you're curious and you want to come, and you could even just do an hour of Shaolin. You don't need to stay the whole day, but you're more than welcome to do that. But you could always get more information on those goings on from Dylan. We'd love to have you. <laughs> and you can contact Dylan via uh, ancientdragon.org or info at ancientdragon.org yeah please, please feel free to do that Doug David Ray, if you don't see any other hands, we could do our closing chant and dedication. And then afterwards, there'll be announcements and a chance to just hang out. For Very good. I will now mute everyone and then um, share the screen. We'll uh, chant the repentance verse three times and then the guidepost for silent illumination. My ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. Guidepost for silent illumination. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. 
When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted, spiritually solitary and shining. Inner illumination restores wonder. Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peak. In darkness it is most bright, while hidden all the more manifest. The crane dreams in the wintry mists, the autumn waters flow far in the distance, endless kalpas are totally empty, all things completely the same. When wonder exists in serenity, all achievement is forgotten in illumination. What is this wonder, alertly seeing through confusion, is the way of silent illumination and the origin of subtle radiance. Vision penetrating into subtle radiance is weaving gold on a jade loom. Upright and inclined yield to each other. Light and dark are interdependent, not depending on sense, faculty, and object. At the right time, they interact. Drink the medicine of good views. Beat the poison-smeared drum. When they interact, killing and giving life are up to you. Through the gate, the self emerges and the branches bear fruit. Only silence is the supreme speech. Only illumination, the universal response. Responding without falling into achievement. Speaking without involving listeners. The 10,000 forms majestically glisten and expound the Dharma. All objects certify it. Everyone in dialogue. Dialoguing and certifying, they respond appropriately to each other. But if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. Certifying and dialoguing, they respond to each other appropriately. But if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. When silent illumination is fulfilled, the lotus blossoms, the dreamer awakens, a hundred streams flow into the ocean, a thousand ranges face the highest peak, like geese preferring milk, like bees gathering nectar. When silent illumination reaches the ultimate, I offer my teaching. The teaching of silent illumination penetrates from the highest down to the foundation. The body being shunyata, the arms in mudra, from the beginning to the end, the changing appearances and 10,000 differences share one pattern. Mr. Ha offered jade to the emperor. Minister Xiangru pointed to its flaws. Facing changes has its principles. The great function is without striving. The ruler stays in the kingdom. The general goes beyond the frontiers. Our school's affair hits the mark straight and true. Transmitted to all directions without desiring to gain credit. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the guidepost for silent illumination. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Heihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, 
Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paravita.